is look at the impact of bipolar-related disorders. We're gonna look at clinical presentations across the lifespan. We're gonna try to identify treatments uh, that are sort of evidence-based at this time or, or FDA approved. And then we will address off-label and whatever questions you guys need. Next. All right, so when we think about the impact of mental illness, uh, this comes out of NAMI. Uh, and basically it just sort of looks at mental health overall. And it talks about one in five uh, U.S. adults experience mental illness, one in 20 adults experience a severe or serious mental illness. Uh, and 17% of the youth aged six to 17 experience a mental health disorder. When you look at the United States, you're gonna see different numbers. It just depends on which study you're looking at. But it looks at, you know, uh, sort of where it falls into the realm of other disorders. So 3% in the United States, um, based on, I think, 2017 numbers from here. Uh, you'll see different numbers that can range anywhere from 1% to 6% for bipolar disorder in the United States. And then you look at the demographics uh, just based on prevalence related to um, age, ethnicity, race, uh, as we go across. Next slide, please. So when we think about bipolar itself, globally 46 million people. Uh, the lifetime prevalence worldwide is 2.4%. It's estimated that 2.8% of U.S. adults receive a bipolar diagnosis annually. When you look at severity, uh, of all the mood disorders, bipolar is found to have the highest likelihood of being classified as severe. Uh, when we look at the prevalence of bipolar-related gender, uh, for overall bipolar disorder, females and males are pretty equal. When you look at the average age of onset, we think about 25 years old. Next slide, please. When you look at the highest rates, it falls in the 18 to 29-year-old age group. That's followed by the 30 to 44-year-olds, which when we sort of think about this, and I know some of these numbers are old, but when you go across the literature, it stays pretty, pretty true to these numbers. Only 2.9% of adolescents have a bipolar disorder, um, and the majority of those that have been diagnosed are rated as severe. When you think about greater than 50 years of age, and that's what they call late onset, after 50, uh, which to me is still extremely young, since I'm about eight years past that. So, uh, but that is the late onset, uh, and about 25% of all bipolar disorders fall in that. Um, we talked about the prevalence being similar in males and females. However, when you look at bipolar two disorder, uh, females appear to be greater than males. When you talk about um, the, uh, the, it says older adults, which hurts my feelings, but late onset bipolar, um, the condition is approximately three times more in young people compared to them. So it's not a huge number, but a lot of times they aren't diagnosed. Um, women um, are twice that of men when you talk about late onset. And then when you think about um, sort of how it hits in the healthcare system, 3% of nursing home residents and 17% of elderly uh, patients presenting to the ER have bipolar disorder. Next slide. And I don't mind if y'all want to, I'm gonna to try to keep the questions up. If you ask me a question as we go along, um, or interrupt or whatever else. As you can tell, I can sort of go with the flow no matter what happens to me, so yeah, we're good to go. When we talk about economics, um, 
and, and just sort of how it impacts. It, um, it's been rated the sixth leading cause of disability in the world. Um, when you talk about cost, it's, it's a little difficult to quantify it um, because to characterize it, you've got to sort of look back at utilization of healthcare and if people put those diagnoses in. But they estimate total and excess costs at $202.1 and $119.8 billion. When you look at where that money is spent, it's caregiving, direct healthcare costs, and then unemployment uh, for those that, that cannot work with the disorder. When you look at why we can't quantify it, a lot of times you also just don't have people that, like in my primary care setting, I have people being treated for bipolar disorder, but when you look at their ICD-10 and you look at where they're diagnosed, it's not in there. The same with like substance use disorder, primary care and different ones may not put that in there. Um, so if you're doing all these retrospective studies and trying to figure out how many and who and what, it's pretty difficult to, to have an accurate sort of number. Next slide, please. There we go. All right. Here's my bread and butter. This is where I get all giddy and excited. Y'all ready? Woo! Okay. So I work in integrated behavioral health. So my whole goal is that I help my primary care counterpart to be able to recognize behavioral health needs and mental illness early and accurately quantify and diagnose it and treat with the evidence-based you know, care. Um, the other side of my coin is that for patients that have severe mental illness, I want to impact their physical health. You know, when you look at severe mental illness, the, the life expectancy is 25 years less than the general population. Uh, with bipolar, it's a little bit different. But when you look at this, we, we don't always, they don't always get the same care. So when we talk about uh, the average is about 9.2 years reduction in expected lifespan for patients with bipolar, it can range anywhere from like 7 to 15% in the literature. The risk of suicide is 10 to 30 times higher than that of the general population. Up to 60% of people with bipolar develop substance use disorder. I mean, we know that. People are not going to hurt. They're going to figure out a way to cope and deal, and a lot of times they will self-medicate. When we look at the most common co-occurring health problems, and these are good to know because sometimes they can give you a clue with diagnosis. Uh, it's migraine, asthma, and high cholesterol. You also have uh, sort of a higher probability of co-occurring um, health problems when you look at high blood pressure, thyroid disease, and osteoarthritis as well. Next slide, please. So, they have a shorter life expectancy and they have a greater risk of early death. Why? Well, we think about just the pathology of bipolar disorder in, in, in uh, mania or hypomania, we have those, those risk-taking behaviors. So those reckless behaviors can lead to fatal accidents, whether it be MBAs or, you know, just, you know, falls or accidental overdose or whatever it is, it's just this risky kind of behavior that has, have poor, has poor outcomes for them. You also have health-harming behaviors, uh, use of illegal substances, smoking, you know, when you think about patients with severe mental illness, cardiovascular disease and infectious disease is what gets them. Um, when you think about uh, their healthcare needs, 
Um, you know your patients and you know you advocate for them, but they do not get the same level of care, especially if they're in that, that smaller percentage, that 0.5 to 1% that's bipolar one uh, severe with psychotic features. When they present in a primary care office, People, aren't, people just don't assume that they can adhere to things, that they can do the same things. They don't get the same level of care. When you look at severe mental illness and you compare for MIs and you compare for inpatient stays, the level of care is very, very different. Um, and there is a bias with them with that healthcare. The other thing of it is, is because of the, the erraticness that, that the disorder causes for their life, to hold down a job, with your job comes insurance. A lot of the times they don't have um, healthcare benefits or anything like that. Uh, especially if they are, they are in that um, time frame of their illness that they don't have a lot of insight um, and they don't believe these uh, symptoms. And we all know anybody with a chronic illness, they're going to recognize it at first, they're going to treat it, and then they're going to say, you know what? I was just having a bad day that day. Yeah, I, I think that's just fine. I don't have to take that medicine, right? And we know people, whether it be bipolar, diabetes, whatever else, are going to bump into treatment and then they're going to convince themselves that they're well and everybody that told them they had something's crazy. And here you go. And finally, they just bump back and forth into treatment until finally it clicks. You know what? Every time I know I'm here to take my medicine, I end up in the big house. I end up here. This happens to me. So when we think about that, there are a number of issues that impact their level of health we talked about the increased risk of suicide and death by suicide. You also have adverse symptoms and illness secondary to medications and treatments. When I first came up, I'm just gonna tell my age, it's gonna hurt my feelings, and I don't think anybody needs to talk about this, but I'll tell you, when I first came out as a family nurse practitioner, it was the year that Prozac came out. It was the first time that the treatment wasn't worse than the disease. Did I say that in the right word? Yeah, I said that right. And so people would take the medicine because they got better and the side effects were much less. Well, then I decided, hey, I've got some kids. I want to work a four-day week. I'm going to go work at the community mental health center. Well, I got there and I was hooked because the people I was seeing, they weren't getting the level of care they deserved. Well, that was when all the second-generation psychotics came out. I've got a wooden desk. I'm going to knock at the storm. I have not been sued for patients gaining weight, metabolic disorders, everything else. When I came into mental health and, and psychiatric studies, I'd already been treating patients for diabetes. I'd already been doing all those things. I couldn't stand by and watch whatever I did cause someone to gain 50 pounds. When I first came into to community mental health, they would say, Laura, Laura, you just have to worry about the gear. Quit worrying about all that stuff. They didn't even write down their, their physical meds. They didn't even care. They were given prescriptions and they were treating, but they didn't look at that. It, it was almost like, you know, in mental health, it was over here and physical health was over there. The other thing is, is coexisting chronic and infectious disease. You know, a lot of times when we look at major depressive disorders, schizophrenia, there is a correlation with metabolic disorders sometimes, with cardiovascular disease, with different things just related to the inflammatory process of the disorders. When we think about on the right, when we think about, you know, how does it impact the body? We know about when we look at the symptoms that it hits that central nervous system and we have status and we have fatigue and we have suicidal thoughts and, and hyperactivity and you don't sleep as well. You know, you may have irritability, but you also have other things if you stop and think about it. Some of our criteria involves appetite and weight. Um, we also think about just when patients have um, depression, 
they have physical symptoms. They have aches and they have pains. A lot of people have GI symptoms, whether it be related to, the, it can be just the disorder. The other thing is sexual functioning. People are manic, it's gonna be religion or sex, almost always, almost always. And somebody's, somebody's fine on related to sex and religion or whatever the above. But when you think about it, you know, with, with depression, your sex drive just drops out sometimes, you know, and with mania, you're hypersexual. So when we think about that, it sort of hits the entire body. The other thing has to do with the, the cardiovascular system. We know that when we sit in the room with a patient who's manic, I don't know about y'all, but my blood pressure goes up, my heart rate goes up, just, just empathetically sitting beside them because they're, they're moving so fast and they're doing it. And a lot of times when we're trying to check blood pressure and heart rate, they're up. So elevated heart rate, palpitations, you know, different things on that order are there. So it sort of impacts everything. Right? All right, so next slide. All right, don't panic. I don't even know what all this slide means. But I want you to just consider something. Um, we all know that if you, you look at a lot of the things that have to do with adverse childhood experience and chronic stress and all of those kind of things, we know that our allostatic load that is that stress burden that we carry around and that impacts us, right? And then our body is always trying to keep just stasis or get, get us adapted back to being in that, that okay range. But when you think about it, you have the input of stressors, you have major life events like a loss of health, loss of a loved one. If you think about the pandemic, holy heck, you know, people lost all kinds of things. Um, and then you think about past history of trauma and abuse. These are precursors for people to, to not necessarily convert into bipolar, but present with bipolar. When you look at how people are wired, everyone's individually is, is different. You know, you, you read about that, that people can have all the same traumas happen to them, and you have these that don't get PTSD, and, and their resiliency is out the roof, and they go forward. You know, you have someone that it, it's just an emotional, don't feel like they're loved or whatever else. And, and we would look at it sometimes and think, that's not a big trauma, but to them it is. And it impacts them greatly with their symptomatology. The other thing has to do with when you have those individual differences, when you have life experiences, it's gonna impact your limbic system, right? And it's gonna impact your perceived, you know, stress. And the behavioral responses that come from that, a lot of the times will either be related to that autonomic nervous system of fight, flight, freeze, tend, befriend, you know, or it's gonna be trying to cope in negative means, which is gonna be, you know, overeating or smoking or excessive substance use or drinking, you know, and not exercising usually. But when you look at this, all of these play in together is, is the only thing I want you to think Next slide. Okay, don't panic again, okay? But the only thing I want you to think about with this is that it's not just that these play on each other and chemically they impact each other, but you have to think that there are alterations in your hippocampus pituitary adrenal system. That all of these types of things impact each other. And you can look at, you know, with clinical disease over time, whether it's 
controlled or you know um, it worsens or you add something to the mix um, with with substitutes or whatever it's going to alter your your chemical feedback and all of those kind of things and when you have a lot of life stresses that's going to impact and sometimes cause more mood episodes and the more you have that it does cause damage to the brain there's a natural progression to where neurons will die that's that apoptosis or whatever else and it, and it sort of has to look at rewiring. Right now with trauma and with um, depressive disorder, there's a lot of focus on apps that look at, at, at artificial intelligence and looks at viewing certain things that sort of trigger up and change how we wire with our limbic system. You know, you look at cognitive impairments have an impact on, and it's not just the chemical, but if you look in the center, it also impacts the, the structure and the function of your brain. That's the thinking part of your brain. Here's your brain. Don't you like that? That's my visual aid. Spinal cord, brain. Anyway, but your thinking part of your brain uh, is the prefrontal cortex and it'll decrease and then the hippocampus will decrease and then that amygdala will kick up. So we start having all these perceived threats and whatever and they oh, you have over response and you just sort of keep that accelerator on your autonomic nervous system and you never put the brake on and race. Any questions about that? It's too early in the morning, I know. All right, let's go. Next slide. Thank goodness we got away from that stuff. Okay, so what causes it? You know, everybody has their idea of what causes uh, bipolar disorder. You know, why are people going to have it? Um, genetics, the biggest thing we think about and when we look at how do we differentiate between major depressive disorder in bipolar disorder and we look at prognosis and everything else. One of the main things it is, it is hereditable. Anyway, hereditary, I can't get it out. But the most common is that you have a family member that has a bipolar or schizophrenic type disorder. And if you think about it, it doesn't matter if they're severely um, bipolar one, psychotic features, severe, it's just that you're more predisposed to have it. That is not saying that the, the child that has that relative is going to have the same path or the same prognosis. It's just that they're more apt to be wired that way versus major depressive. Does that make sense to everybody? Shake your head a little bit so I know. I have to have mm -hmm. interactions sometimes. They also look at certain genes that are involved, and they have the two genes here that play a role in causing people to be more susceptible to developing bipolar disorder. But it's not that simple. It's not just those two genes. They also look at a number of genetic variations. When they compare those that, that don't have bipolar to those that do, there are genetic variations, and it almost comes down to the more recent stuff is, is it has, it's, it's a mix of those differences and those variations. It's not just one variation, it's, it's a different mix of that, and they're still looking at that. The other thing is we look at biological traits. Most everybody has sort of heard, and I say it all the time, that it's a dysregulation of dopamine. You know, when I try to explain treatments to everyone, you know, I talk about, especially with bipolar depression, you know, I want a medication or something that's going to work to sort of modulate your dopamine. You know, bring it down if it's too high and bring it up if it's too low. Um, but we're really not assured with those neurotransmitters and how our medicines do, but that's our, our hypothesis of what works. And when you look at psychosis and aggression and different things like that, it's not just dopamine. All of our medicines have been directed at dopamine, but you got to think a lot. It's always a biofeedback mechanism. So you also have serotonin and glutamate 
that something like escitalopram, you know, escitalopram and Lexapro is, is our most potent serotonergic agent. And the thing that is, is it can cause the same side effects as Risperidone. It can cause um, lacteria. It can cause gynecomastia. It can cause those kind of things because how it down-regulates with dopamine. So downstream, if you have high serotonin levels, downstream it's going to impact and bring up your dopamine. With glutamate, it's the same thing. It impacts the dopamine system. We also look at people with bipolar disorder. We talk about those changes in the neurons and everything else, but that the, the neurons are different in patients with bipolar. They interact and they function differently than those that are not diagnosed. And we talked about those differences in uh, the, the structure. And they, they don't have where they can do uh, functional MRIs and things like that to diagnose bipolar, but they are starting to notice that certain areas of the brain um, are, are smaller or different, and they notice that the communication between hemispheres are different with people that, with bipolar. The other thing that is is that there is a strong correlation between development of bipolar disorder and, and childhood abuse and neglect um, toxic or, or chronic mental stress. Um, and one of the main ones is significant loss or extreme traumatic event will almost bring on a mood. The other is substance. It makes sense. If a lot of our meds act on dopamine um, and crank it up, it's, it's a really hard thing to know, especially when we have people that are starting to use substances as young as 12, 13, you know, when they're having puberty and they're using cocaine and methamphetamine and they're using heroin. You know, chicken or egg, what came first? The good thing about it is I got to treat both of them with medicine, but yet you don't know. One of the key things that we find with substances is that they had a, a diagnosis of depression probably prior to substance use, like in their preschool and middle school days. Next slide, please. All right, I'm gonna stop for just a second because Ashley asked me a question. So do I think that dissociation is a symptom of bipolar one disorder? Hmm. You know, if you stop and think about it, one, it's hard to tell because co-occurring trauma with that, but you do have schizophrenia bipolar where they have catatonic kind of response and that they will shut down. And I think if you talk about these systems that you have and you talk about allostatic loading and you talk about impact on the limbic system, then I think people really can. It kicks on that autonomic nervous system and they shut down. Um, so yes, I, I think to a point they look, it's so hard to differentiate. And a lot of the times we're gonna treat patients with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder and depression with a lot of those somatic therapies and a lot of those kind of therapies. You know, I'm not smart enough to do therapy like y'all want to do therapy. I do bottom up kind of thing. Let me tell you how to do this to maybe shut off the nervous system. And we go forward. I do the medicine and I send them to y'all. That's how it works. So when we think about that, it can cause that. I'm not going to go over and spend a lot of time on diagnosing bipolar disorder. Y'all read the DSM and y'all know what it is. But basically, you just sort of look at it. It's got to do with high, normal, and low mood. It got crisis. And it's got to do with that severity of that mood. So when you have sort of onset, usually is a depressive episode, and then you have either manic or to a lesser degree, hypomanic kind of response. And then you have sort of that fluctuation of one. Next slide. Y'all don't know I didn't have any sleep last night. We just talking to So when we look at it, how do we tell which is which? I mean, there is so much overlap. 
And it is not a, a snapshot from anything. That, that's the part I have to teach in my primary care folks. Hypomanic folks do not come in to see you. They get their house clean and they work a second job and they do all these other things and they like it. As long as it doesn't mess up the relationships, get them arrested or get them in trouble, let's run this baby, you know? And they feel more creative. They, they're always seeking that. We know that with our patients with bipolar. They're always seeking want to be on that edge of being hypomanic and having all that energy and doing all those things. And, and they don't, they're almost like a race car. They don't know how to run it with regular speed limit. What do y'all think about that one? I thought that was pretty good. Right. So if we think about um, manic episodes, you know, when we look down through here, we recognize all these symptoms. Um, and when you compare it to hypomanic, it does have to do more with the degree. Um, a lot of the times you don't have as much aggression and rudeness. It's more overly talkative and friendly and just intrusive and interrupting people and talking too fast. Um, you have don't you have trouble concentrating and trying to think on a number of different things, but you don't usually lose social inhibitions. Um, you can function in day to day with other folks. Um, don't have psychotic features. Um, we we know that you're going to have decreased sleep sleep needs. You're going to have uh, increased sexual functioning. Your risk taking behaviors are in both, but they're not to the same degree. Um, and then you have what we call the difference is that, oh, I, I bought stuff on Amazon and I probably shouldn't, but you didn't buy $5,000 worth of stuff when you had $20 in your bank account when you're hypomanic versus me. When we look at depressed mood, it's the same symptoms we would expect, um, but there are a couple of them you have to think about, and some of these really do come along with our treatment. So when you have someone with bipolar depression and we give them an antidepressant unopposed, suicidal thoughts, sleep disturbances, psychomotor agitation, those are commonplace what you will see. They've even looked at it and it surprised me in some of the studies that have come out lately, they overeat and can gain weight. I just always thought when you're in a mixed state or whatever else, you're too fast or you're doing whatever you wouldn't do that, but it's more common that they're doing that which is losing weight. Next slide. I don't know if this is anything. <coughs> this is a busy slide, but it's <coughs> a couple of things. When we talk about mixed state, they're, they're harder to sort of quantify and, and know what we do. Um, when you talk about major depressive uh, with mixed features, first over type two. You know, what's the difference? The the mixed features are almost what bipolar 2 is when you give them an antidepressant. They have not only the some of the core symptoms of depression, but they also have those core symptoms, some of them of uh, that manic or hypomanic kind of thing. A lot of times when I see it the most are in uh, postpartum women. They'll be very depressed when they're functioning, uh, functioning kind of issues, but they'll, they'll just have and they're tired all the time, but they really can't get sleep. It, it's just out of sorts is the best description I have. If y'all have some better or some ways that y'all think about that different, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Throw it in the chat or tell me. Damn, I thought I caught all my mistakes. I found one. All right, next slide. So differential diagnosis. Um, this is important for all of us because we gotta know what they've got to give them the best treatment for what they have. And me, it really is because my treatments can be counterintuitive. They don't, they don't work right. 
So if you look at the breakdown, uh, and this is a, a survey of, of some of the top psychiatrists, and they all got together and sort of looked at and told each other about, you know, what is the most difficult to differentiate the percentage that they saw. And so the hardest was borderline personality disorder to, to differentiate it from bipolar. And, and I saw in one article they called it uh, border polar. Have y'all heard that? I had not even. I saw it last night about three in the morning. I was like, what the heck is this? I may have been seeing things, but I know I think I really saw it. Then you look at unipolar depression. A lot of times, if you think about it, patients are being treated 75% of the time it's in primary care. In the majority of the pharmaceutical companies that sell second generation antipsychotics aren't targeting me. They're targeting primary care. They're trying to get them to write. And a lot of times those primary care folks are not comfortable. And a lot of times they're looking to the therapist to tell them what to prescribe. If y'all had the classes and y'all know it, y'all do it. If you haven't, I, I wouldn't take the risk. I mean, I, I put in a lot of time to try to figure these meds out. And it's still tricky. Um, when you look at it, you also have attention deficit hyperactive When I look at this, <coughs> I know pediatric cases, almost always they're gonna be treated for ADHD. And, and depending on what county I'm working at, all these kids come to me and they don't wanna hear about therapy, they don't wanna hear about anything else, I'm supposed to medicate them, so they'll sit still in school. Doesn't really work, but it's always difficult. It's difficult even in adults. Um, and the co-occurring is difficult. And, and to get that sweet spot of treating both of them uh, can be very hard too. And a lot of times patients that have ADHD that's not been treated, especially when they were younger, they are gonna self-medicate with substances, which is gonna aggravate the bipolar And then you have schizophrenia. You know, you have those that are schizoaffective versus bipolar severe with psychotic features. And we know that it's got to do with the thought process, that the thought process is disorganizing everything else with the extreme of mood versus the thought process is chronic and then they have the mood okay. Next slide. Here's the fun one. Everybody I see in detox has a bipolar diagnosis. Are they really bipolar? Or was it the substance? And used to, I would want them to be sober six months before I made a decision. Well, you know about how effective I was at getting people well and keeping them sober. So we know better than that now. We don't wait that long. We treat people and do dual treatment when we have them in detox. And we know that some of our medications can help with cravings, can help with a lot of the leftover effective mood and thoughts that come with substance use. So when you look at that elevated or euphoric mood, um, it can be intoxication with cannabis inhalants, opioids, or something. <coughs> when you have irritable mood, it can be the withdrawal from caffeine, cannabis, and tobacco. I was sort of surprised when I thought about irritable and I thought, well, no, that, that's true. When you have somebody come on the detox unit and you tell them they can't smoke, you just might as well wait and get your tail whooped if you don't give them enough and they can't have to go on to. Distractibility, um, it, it's people being sort of stoned or, or, or their concentration down, so opioid intoxication can be it. It can also be uh, intoxication. Increase in activity and psychomotor agitation. It can be with some withdrawals and some intoxication. And then you have involvement in activity with high potential for painful consequences. I like that term. I just thought I just got to put that down because that's cool. But when you look at it, it's those that have significant uh, substance use disorder 
And, and when they're on either alcohol or benzodiazepine, because the level of disinhibition. They, you know, if they were if they were sober, they wouldn't have done that. And a lot of times, self-harm and suicidal attempts is a huge one that we'll run into. That you always want to know: Were you using when you did that, or were you sober? Next. So, a quick and down and dirty. Y'all know this: bipolar one. Criteria met for at least one manic episode. They might have been preceded or followed by a hypomanic episode or major depressive episode. Um, depressive episode or psychosis do not have to present for diagnosis. Bipolar 2 disorder. Most often, bipolar 2 is a, a disorder of depression uh, with spells of hypomanic kind of intervention. And for both, when you're diagnosing and you look back into their history, and I'll ask patients, when was the first time you knew that you were more sad or more anxious or whatever than everybody else? How was you? You know, versus just asking when you got treated. And I think that gives you a lot of information. And you ask people, what were you like before you started using drugs? And a lot of times you're going to track back, and sadly you're going to find trauma. Uh, but sadly, sometimes you're going to find family history, significant symptoms, suicidal thought, and even attempts when they're in puberty. Cyclothymic disorder, uh, the hypomanic symptoms, they just don't meet that full hypomanic criteria. You just have, in other words, instead of this, it sort of is just that sort of up and down just a little bit. And when you look at it, uh, you have they don't meet full criteria for either the hypomanic or the depressive, and they have numerous periods, at least half the time, for at least two years, and those under 18 criteria um, is just one year to come up with that diagnosis. Next, please. Other specified bipolar disorder. Um, you know, these two I struggle with, honestly, Unspecified bipolar-related disorder is usually, I, I do that when I don't have enough history. You look you look bipolar to me, but I don't know. I can't get no history and you're acting a fool right here in front of me and whatever else, so you can unspecified. Other <coughs> bipolar disorders, you know, I, I don't really use it that often. Uh, sometimes it's just early in the disorder and, and you don't have your time frames that can come with the fool, um, but they do go through that sort of cycle. I think that's how I look at it if you guys think about it a little different. Um, ooh. Ashley, why do you make me think so hard today? I'm going to think on that one as we keep going. I'm, I'm, we're going to get to that. All right, next. All right, so I know y'all went to school and y'all are smart. And y'all know that DSM-5 backwards and forwards, y'all breathe it, y'all live it. Y'all just have to have a history and talk to them and you can make a diagnosis. Sadly, you and I are only treating about 20% uh, of the people who have mood disorders. The majority of them are in primary care. And primary care is not prepared. The majority of them do not have classes. I started teaching classes for a family nurse practitioner. Um, and, and they'll get like two solid days for me just teaching them. And most of it's just teaching them where the resources are. But then not necessarily having to ask a good history and get it in the right order or whatever. But they start with screeners. When you look at this rapid mood screen, this is a new one. Uh, Dr. McIntyre out of Canada and some of his cohorts have done this one. This is mainly for primary care. Um, and it's just a six item screen that 
Oh, I can't do that. But if I click on that, you can see, and it, it would come up if it was on my side. But you can look it up and see, and it's just these questions, and it mainly asks about those things that I told you to look for in differentiating, or I'm going to tell you, in differentiating major depressive disorder from bipolar disorder. This is not to the level of making a diagnosis. This just lets you know, hey, I need to dig farther and I need to do more. Um, I do use a lot of screeners when I first uh, have patients come into primary care. And you gotta think they're not only just screeners. A lot of them are screeners and they are scales as well. And the scales is what helps me to quantify the level of illness when I start. I do my interventions and then I can measure that level of illness and those specific symptoms to their disorder later. So mood disorder questionnaire, it's a 15 item yes or no. Uh, it's related to hypomania and mania. Seven yeses out of the 13 questions, I think it's maybe 11, but uh, is a positive screen for bipolar disorder. And then you have two questions that assess for the present symptoms and in, in level of severity. And they also ask a question about family history. Next slide, please. Now look, everybody don't love the, the, the PHQ, <coughs> but I love the PHQ-9 mainly because in primary care now, patient-centered medical home, they don't just have to, to say, hey, someone's got depression. We screen everyone that's over 12 years old. And used to, you just had to say they have it, and I refer to you for treatment. But now, primary care is responsible for if you say they have major depressive disorder, or bipolar disorder, or, or bipolar depressive disorder, that you've got to measure it, and you've got to treat it, and you've got to try to get them to remission in 12 months. Now they're not going to give you more money and they're not going to do something. I don't know. They always threaten us with the outcomes and get them. The other is the Young Mania Rating Scale. Um, you know, I, I think for me, it just sort of keeps me honest sometimes in, in just sort of looking at the level that they are when they come back in, especially with, with kids when I think about some of the stuff. And it's an 11 item uh, clinician rating scale. Um, and if it's less than 12, it's considered remission. Next, please. So clinical presentations. What are some little tricks or clues or things that you sort of think about? Um, you know, we know that um, patients who come in with bipolar disorder can have some prodromal symptoms. And I have a slide after this, that we'll talk about what those specifically are. Most often, the mood episode at onset is depression. It may not be to where they got treatment. It may not be to where they are, but it, it's significant impairment to where you have isolation, their ADLs are bothered, they may or may not be suicidal. You know, different things that happen, but usually it is in adults, the onset of symptoms. And an early onset with depression is usually almost indicative sometimes of bipolar disorder. Their presentation can be manic, it can be hypomanic, or it can be depressed when they come to see you. Of course, we don't want just our snapshot. We want to know the longevity of your symptoms. And, and in those symptoms, do you have that fluctuation? And do they meet our criteria? Um, they can remit um, and have periods of being euthymic or asymptomatic. Um, or there are those that fluctuate between the extremes and they just never seem to get asymptomatic. I talk about treating bipolar disorder, it's like turning a bar. The worst thing that a lot of new prescribers do is they over-treat symptoms and you're constantly chasing those symptoms and you're inducing things. 
So starting out with one agent, getting it time to do what it's supposed to do, getting the, the normal up and down and flow of symptoms to, you know, if someone is on the up, waiting to see what the down's gonna be, being closely watching and not letting them get to, to any harm, but not over um, Deep fast is a mnemonic that a lot of um, primary cares and different ones will use uh, for mania, but there's also one called whiplash. Uh, and it's one that we use for bipolar depression, or differentiating between major depressive disorder and bipolar depression. Next slide, please. Um, when you look at those prodromal symptoms, uh, this was uh, um, two different kind of studies where they looked at this. And what they found is you sort of have sort of this over overproductive goal directed, not, not reading to that truly increased activity, all those kind of things, but they're just overproductive and doing a bunch of things. Uh, somewhat of a depressed mood, but not to the level that it should you know, warrant a major depressive or bipolar depressive. Uh, sleep disturbances and insomnia, academic work difficulties, elated mood, not euphoria, not mania, but just elated mood, more talkative, indecisiveness, diminished ability to think, which is, I was there because I didn't stay up all night filling this thing together, so I am diminished, I'm just gonna tell you, and too much energy. Does that sound reasonable to everybody? Okay, all right, next slide. Bipolar depre depression versus major depressive disorder. Whiplash. They're worse or wired when they get antidepressants. They have hypomania, hyperphymic temperament, and mood swings in their history. They're irritable, hostile, or they're mixed in that presentation, that out of sorts. Psychomotor retardation, or psychomotor agitation sometimes as well. L is that loaded family history. For bipolar illness, affective disorders, mood disorders. A lot of times I'll ask, they may not know what they have, but has anybody in your family ever been in a psychiatric hospital or, or ever tried to commit suicide? And just in a roundabout way getting history from them. And a lot of times they'll say, hey, they don't have a diagnosis, but I'm gonna promise you everything I see on the TV, my mama's got it, or so-and-so's got it. Uh, abrupt onset and termination of the depressive episodes, uh, less than three months. Seasonal and postpartum depression. Postpartum, I know there is postpartum depression, but you have to really watch it because a lot of women that have um, significant symptoms postpartum end up being bipolar. And it is really usually a mixed presentation. And these are the people that may have gotten benefit from an antidepressant, but when you try to give them an antidepressant postpartum, they go off the rails. Um, hyperphagia, hypersomnia, um, early onset, like we talked about, early onset of symptoms and usually depression. And then of course, if they have delusions, hallucinations, or psychotic features, especially when we give them an unopposed uh, antidepressant, that's of course bipolar. Next, please. This is pretty much the same things that I just talked to you about, but it's also to consider that last bullet point, the pattern of comorbidity. Um, in bipolar disorder, you do have patients that have major depressive disorder that will drink just not to feel so bad, that will use marijuana not to feel so bad. Um, but a lot of the times with bipolar disorder, I told you they're chasing something. 
They, they want that, that hypomanic, more energy created kind of place. And oftentimes they'll either want you to medicate, medicate, or they'll start self-medicating themselves. So substance use disorder and migraine. Migraine has a close correlation. And the other thing is, is that polymorbidity. Three or more comorbid conditions. When we talk about those comorbid, it's like going to be hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, those kind of things. It, it's difficult to tease that one out because if they had much treatment, we could have caused this um, treatment-induced kind of uh, disorders like that. But a lot of times you'll see these uh, comorbidities running hand-in-hand with bipolar disorder. Next, please. So, how are kids different? So when you think about child and adolescent, their main depression is often presents in a different way. So when they are more disruptive and aggressive, they're more irritable, they're, they have more tantrum or, or, or disruptive outbursts. Uh, and young children, they may present more with physical complaints. They may have, the, of course, the irritability, inconsolable kind of crying kind of events, significant difficulty with relationships, uh, extremely sensitive to negative reactions from others. Now, when we look at this in and of by itself, you're like, well, that also fits. Well, it does. But when you think about family history, you know, young kids, and especially young kids that present to me that they're trying to treat them for ADHD or whatever else, and it does not work, and they're having to use three, four, five meds, you have to back up and think about, okay, do I have a family history of bipolar? Um, you know, when they're giving stimulants, how do they respond? You know, is there sleep issue? You know, ADHD kids sleep. They run 100 miles an hour and then they're out. But bipolar kids have sleep disturbances and they have these things sleep um, And they have, it, it almost like sometimes the, the stimulants when they're coming off, it, it kicks all of their behavioral and their mood and their affect and their high gear. When you talk about older pre-adolescents and adolescents, they're more likely to experience sort of a mixed presentation and symptoms um, end up cycling more rapidly between those depressive and manic symptoms compared to adults. And a newer study that came out in 2019, this was out of um, Michigan, they sort of found that childhood sleep and anxiety disorders are important predictors for emerging bipolar disorder. That doesn't mean everybody that doesn't sleep, everybody that has anxiety and do it, but you have to think about it and you have to do your differential when they present like this. Next, please. I think I'm gonna make it and not fall asleep right in the middle of talking to y'all. I'm so excited. All right, so late onset. So late onset, and I told you I would be a late onset if I probably wasn't diagnosed a long time ago, but you always have to think about the differential diagnosis. Um, depression, dementia, stroke, neurological conditions can appear the same way. And the main reason being is that a lot of times at late in life, their, their symptoms are less severe, and that sort of lends to the misdiagnosis and the improper treatment. Um, you have to be very, very careful with these patients when you're looking at and you're evaluating them. You can't just go based on our DSM-5 and whatever thing else. It is a diagnosis almost of exclusion when you look at this. And so when you go through, you have to take a really good history. And in that history, you want the course of mood symptoms, their medical history to see if there's anything that adds to or mimics or looks like bipolar disorder. 
Do they have any psychiatric history? The one other one is, is substance. Substance back in the day. You know, you gotta think all our hippies are starting to get into their, you know, 60s and whatever else. Um, and they may have done enough acid and enough heroin and whatever else that don't just think because they're a sweet little old lady that they ain't using some for doing some. I cannot tell you the number of times I've done a urine drug screen on somebody that's getting home health in their 70s and they're positive for cocaine. Can't explain it. I don't know. I just I, anybody over 12 gets a drug screen when they come see me. I just I just don't go with how you look or what you are. And little old ladies fool me, so I just I just scream them. Um, the other thing you have to think about is pre-morbid personality, cognition, and functional status. What were they like a year ago? What were they like before these symptoms came on? You want to have that baseline of what they were. You also want to use standardized mental status examination. The mini mental status, the MCOM, uh, uh, the mini -com, I think, um, or the, the posting, the, the mental status exam. But you want to do something, I like the slums, the St. Louis University Medicine Dementia Evaluation, mainly because it gives me a level. Um, and, it, and it is in a way that they can't learn the answers and do better the next time or whatever else. And they'll study for those tests sometimes. Don't, let, don't think they don't. They study for their eyes too. Um, they also look at doing, um, I will refer patients when I cannot differentiate from neurosymptoms or true cognitive decline. I will send them to the, the neuropsych center, uh, Dr. Antoine, different ones uh, that are through West Tennessee Healthcare or wherever you have that option to be able to look at not only just memory and, and different aspects of memory, but um, reading time, you know, response times, all those kind of things that they do with their psychometric testing. Um, you want to do a really good physical exam because a lot of times there are a lot of things that will look like bipolar disorder, thyroid disorders, um, different types of arrhythmias. There's all kinds of different things that can look the same. And you always want to do a good workup. Blood and urine examinations. Um, one of the main things for psychosis in elderly is usually UPI. So you want to make sure that you do those tests. You want to look at B12 folate levels. Um, don't assume just because they look like a sweet little lady, they, they are a little old man, that they didn't have a big time way back in the day and, and they could have contracted syphilis or something like that, which can also cause some of these things. Also HIV testing because of the neural components that go with it. And of course, drug screen. And then you always have to, if you have any kind of component, not necessarily a deficit, but if all of a sudden you see illness, they don't use one side of their body or they, they seem to just forget how to do things with one side or the other, you've always got to think about um, glioblastomas, uh, injuries, um, aneurysms, different things that are functional that will only be seen on imaging. Um, treat any underlying medical and neurological condition. Uh, and then the other thing for them is always to remove offending medicines or drugs of abuse. And when you look over here at treatment considerations, as we get older, it doesn't matter what we did in our 30s and 40s. We cannot take the same drugs when we get in our 50s and 60s because our renal clearance and our hepatic clearance are not the same. Um, drug drug interactions, people are now taking 5, 10, 15 meds. So all of my students have to, and myself included, I do drug drug interactions to make sure do all these things play nice. You can't keep all that in your head after how long you have done it. Um, the other thing is um, the Beers criteria. Their Beers criteria is basically they reuptake that almost every year from the Geriatric Association. And there are certain drugs that they don't recommend for people over 65. 
uh, benzodiazepines, antihistamines. There's reasons that patients have trouble getting those paid for by Medicare because they're not recommended under standard of care. There are other things that are safe. Um, we always have to consider whatever we do, are we gonna drop their blood pressure, mess with their balance, are we gonna cause them to fall? Because you gotta think people over 65, one in four are not gonna survive if they break their hip or something. The other thing is think about the medicines you use and the impact on their cognitive functioning. When patients tell me I can't think and I can't concentrate, but they're still asking me for their Xanax, you know, I have to explain, you know, I, 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 you know, I can calm you down, but you're not gonna be smart. It's the same thing with marijuana. Hey, you can tell me all day long. Let's make it legal. Let's do whatever. It's never made anybody smart. It's never made anybody think faster. Um, so you have to consider the things that they add into their mix. Next, please. So here's where we get into some of the conversations. So I'm going to look down here and look at some of the questions. And if y'all have questions specific about some of these, I want you to chime in. Um, Okay, so one of the things was asked about the limbic system um, and if it could eventually cause, I don't know about idiopathic epilepsy, but pseudo seizures uh, is a commonplace thing when I send people for neuro exams. People, it's a hard thing to know, with seizure disorders, we all come with a different level of seizure threshold. And there are some people that they take one dose of Wellbutrin, they're gonna hit the floor and start shaking all over. Um, any of our medications that are psychotropics impact seizure threshold. Um, there are some to where we give people anticonvulsants for bipolar and then somebody says, oh, that's not working great and takes it away very, very quickly. Do we impact that with seizures? There are pseudo seizures and a lot of the times they are sort of associated and I think there's some form of dissociation. I really do. And, and I think a lot of times when I treat anxiety better, but you don't really know sometimes until you send them in for that 24-hour, 48-hour uh, EEG monitoring sometimes to know the difference. You can see the number of people that are on high-dose uh, anticonvulsants for possible seizures that they've had significant trauma with. I had one that it wasn't just associative, he had DID, and, and that, you know, we did the, the monitoring thing and started taking some of the anticonvulsants away, and he got much better uh, trauma treatment and they resolve. So does that answer your question? Was that Ashley? Did I answer your question, Ashley? Yes, yes. Hey, all right. All right, now, let me go down through this. I'm gonna leave anybody out. Um, diagnosing children. Um, they really looked at it and most of the, the information that's come across, they had the, the guideline for treatment of children with bipolar disorder that came out from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatrists in 2007. And if you read that thing, it almost looked at anybody that had a fluctuation of mood was bipolar. It was not the easiest thing to look at. They had a lot of science and a lot of things behind it, but they, they had all these different kind of things that I don't think teased out. I think in the last 10 years, they've done a lot more research and they've looked at it. And I think that they are getting much better about diagnosing it. And a lot of times with kids, if we do really good um, developmental assessments, um, we do adverse childhood experiences and assess their, their living conditions and we address resiliency and we give them coping skills and we do a lot of different stuff. 
you can sort of tease out. You know, I, I tell people that if you put three kids in front of me that are that are school age and they're all tearing up my office and doing whatever else, you know, one may be ADHD, one may be bipolar, and one of them just needs to have some limits. And back in the day, you'd say an ass whooping, but I know that it's not, you know, politically correct right now. Although I've got a bunch of them, but they just don't have structure and they have a chaotic life. So I think that we're getting better about diagnosing. I think that um, I am much more comfortable in medicating kids. Now, a lot of times what I will pick is I won't pick a D2 antagonist that blocks up all the dopamine. I will pick a, a, a partial agonist that regulates. I, I sort of fix something, I hope, um, in treating it early. And a lot of times it's gonna be a family history that's pretty significant for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Um, I'm going to have a lot of those key symptoms that we talked about in kids. Um, and I, I'm going to watch them very closely and how they respond to what we do. And I'm definitely going to screen them for trauma and all the other kind of things that can go wrong. But the hardest thing is, is that a lot of people have comorbidities. And they have ADHD and bipolar. They have trauma and bipolar. And so it's very hard to tease out, especially with kids. I hope that answers what you were saying. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think like you talked about, you were talking about the fight or flight and bipolar. I, I, I think it's very hard to tease it out in kids, but I think it's hard to tease it out in adults too. Um, if they've never had treatment, they've never addressed it. Um, and I, I cannot tell you when I've, I've worked with folks and y'all worked with folks and really helped them to address the trauma symptoms and that they have better coping skills, that they are able to redirect their, their symptomatology and, and really do those things that hopefully rewire their limbic system. And all of a sudden I see a totally different presentation when they come see me. And I can bring them off meds and bring them off things and it's a much easier thing to diagnose them. If that sort of helps you what you got. All right, so the FDA, God love the FDA. They're good people. They just, they pass everything now. So when we look at how it's broken down, FDA approves drugs based on um, the different types of depression. So you have acute bipolar depression, acute mania and mix, and then you have maintenance. So when we look at these, these are the drugs that have FDA approval. And these are in adults right now. I'll have the children here in a minute. So you have Periprazine, which is Braylar. You have uh, Lorazidone, which is Latuda. Quetiapine was one of the first STAs that got uh, the indication, as well as the combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine, which is Symbiax. And a lot of people have fallen out of favor with the Symbiax because they just don't, the way it's put together, um, as you go up on olanzapine, you sort of go up on the fluoxetine too, and so most people don't get what they want out of it. You also have those that are not approved. Lipitaparone or Caplita is in phase three studies right now. Lithium is the gold standard, and, and we use it for depression. They've done it for years, but it doesn't have an FDA indication. Lamotrigine, you see everybody and their brother on it, but it is only indicated for maintenance, and you'll see that in a minute. Um, antidepressants are, are um, used in combination with anticonvulsants sometimes for the depression. Um, a lot of times if I use an antidepressant versus a, a second generation, it's going to be because they have a lot of high risk factors or I'm not really sure on that diagnosis of bipolar versus major depression. You know, I have trouble with bipolar disorder, bipolar depression and major depression with trauma. 
Um, I really have trouble teasing those out sometimes and, and knowing you know, what they're going to respond to and what they're going to do. Um, ECT uh, is used for bipolar depression, especially postpartum, uh, especially if there's a psychotic component to some of it. Uh, and then a repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. You have different pulses in different places they use that. Next, please. Um, when you look at bipolar mania, um, you have lithium, which is the gold standard. We don't use it as much mainly because long term, it is eventually going to cause you problems with your thyroid, your kidneys, or your heart. Not everybody. And if you monitor it, but you've got to monitor it well. And you cannot give up. And even if you've monitored for 10, 15 years, somebody can still come up with hypothyroidism from it. So it's, it's one of those things, it's a gold standard. It works when everything else doesn't work. Um, a lot of primary care are starting to pick it up again, I think just because of cost. Um, but I worry because I just don't know that they're going to, um, it's going to control it. But those that um, sort of are rapid cyclers, lithium and Depakote do a lot better. And sometimes it even has to be um, a combination of the two when it's refractory. Tegretol has fallen out of um, um, favor just mainly because you have to drop low work. Um, but oxcarbamazepine or trileptal, they use them sort of interchangeably and you don't have to do the blood with it. Um, but it isn't approved. Um, our erythriprazole, acinephine, which is saccharis, caripracine, which is Braylar, and then Halidol does have approval. Um, also, olanzapine, quetiapine, respiradol, and zoprazidone. And then you also have a number of the SGAs uh, that have um, adjunct treatment, whether it's combined with lithium or uh, Valproix, and that's the, the ones that are done with that. Um, even though paliperidol, which is in vega, or in vega sustenin, which is a long-acting injection, is used for um, bipolar mania or depression, it mainly only, I think, has an indication for schizoaffective kind. Next, please. Um, bipolar maintenance. This is where your lamotrigine falls in. Now, I'm not going to tell you people don't use lamotrigine for depression and mania and mix. A lot of times they'll use it for um, major depression with mixed features. They'll use it for kids. And the main reason they use it off-label for kids is because you can treat children as young as two years old for seizures with lamotrigine. So if you can use it in another condition safely, you're a little more comfortable using it off-label uh, in children or different ones um, for that. Um, but you also have your lithium, you have your erythroprazole, oral and long-acting injectables. The long-acting injectables are Abilify Maintena and Aristotle. Um, you have acinepine, uh, which is saccharis, which nobody really likes to take because it's sublingual and it numbs up their mouth and it tastes like metal and they get mad at you, but it's a good drug if you get around that. Uh, Lamotrigine we talked about, adjunctive with quetiapine or Seroquel, Cyprexa, um, and then uh, Respiradol, uh, long-acting injectable, the Compsta, and then Zoprazidone uh, or Geodon. And then, of course, the Paliperidone is not for the maintenance, but it's used. Next, please. Okay. Don't nobody know what to do with these kids. But believe it or not, there are FDA indications. And I would recommend strongly if anybody ever medicates or does whatever, that go with what is FDA approved first. Um, you have different options when you look at uh, pediatric bipolar disorder. 
for artificial, the, the starting point is age 10 for mania, acute mania and NICS. Lithium has been long-standing one of the main research drugs for pediatric bipolar because it was about all we had back in the day. Um, and so for anyone seven years old with acute mania, mixed mania, and maintenance, it is not something people go through quickly. I wouldn't recommend anybody in primary care or anybody else do it. And I'm squeamish about doing it, and I've been doing it for 30 years. Lorazidone, uh, greater than 10 years old for bipolar depression. Lorazidone is Latuda. It's a D2 antagonist. It blocks at about uh, 80 to 90% of the D2 receptors, um, which is where you get the potency for um, mood and psychosis, but you also can get some of the side effects. Olanzapine, greater than 13 years old for acute mania and mixed mania, and greater than 10 years old for that Cindiax combination with fluoxetine and olanzapine for bipolar depression. Olanzapine, though, has fallen out of favor mainly because of metabolic disorders, weight gain, um, but they're coming out with a new drug, um, labelvine, I think it's called, and they're mixing it with an opioid I don't know. I have to stop and think about it. It hadn't come out really good yet, so I don't have to use it yet. Um, but basically, it, that works on the reward centers and has to do with satiety and appetite. And it doesn't necessarily help people lose weight, but it can prevent people from gaining the same amount of weight when they're on elanzapine. Because elanzapine was a great drug. It just was that uh, you had all the metabolic stuff. The same thing with quetiapine. Uh, and it's indicated in children 10 years in, uh, with acute mania. Um, Risperdone, uh, long-standing used with children. You can go down uh, even much younger if you have a child that's autistic and aggressive and has maybe some bipolar with it, God love. Um, but, and it's probably been studied more than any of the SGAs in pediatric populations. But it also is a type D2 blocker, so you have to think about um, galacteria, you have to think about uh, EPS and targeting, any of them can cause this. Any B2 blocker, no matter how tightly it binds, can. Uh, and we always have to screen. The very, very young and the very, very old are much more prone to get target dyskinesia, so we always want to screen them. Next, please. Co-occurring. All right, I didn't put a reference on this because I didn't think about this till the last minute, and this is the world according to Laura, so hang on. Um, when we look at it, ADHD, used to, you would never get me to prescribe a stimulant for anyone that's bipolar. However, the data that's coming out is when you have a known person who had documented bipolar, I mean bipolar, documented ADHD symptoms as a child and persists with symptoms as an adult, they are getting good response in putting them on anticonvulsants and stabilizing the mood and then using low dose um, stimulants. You usually want to try methylphenidate products first because methylphenidate products are um, your dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake blockade. It's much more significant than the antidepressants, but it doesn't act like amphetamines, which do that, but also tell your brain to produce more, more dopamine, more dopamine. Uh, and you know if your dopamine is too high, uh, we believe that causes the psychosis, the mania, agitation the aggression if your dopamine is too low that has to do with your focus attention uh, clarity of thought um, distractibility and depression PTSD if you look at um, the standard of care the SSRIs are the first-line treatment for PTSD then comes SNRIs then comes mirtazapine and some different ones like that 
And, but you do have some anecdotal and not FDA approved, but third and fourth line benefit with gabapentin and pregabalin, which is lyrica. This falls into when I have people that have chronic pain, maybe substance use, um, that I get some benefit for PTSD and mood. It, it doesn't work. Gabapentin is not a great um, mood stabilizer, but if you have someone that's more um, major depressive with mixed or bipolar 2 or something like that, it can be adequate enough. The other thing is Brexcriprazole or Rexulti is in phase 3 trials right now looking at an indication for PTSD. Um, Brexcriprazole or Rexulti did not get bipolar approval um, for treatment, mainly because what we're finding with a lot of research now is that the placebo is too, they respond too good. <laughs> So they get a lot better with nothing. Uh, and they think that's what happened to them. So I don't know if they'll seek that indication or not. The biggest thing with borderline personality disorder and, and bipolar is do no harm. You want to avoid anything that they can overdose and kill themselves with. Um, the second generations have anecdotal and not FDA approved, but anecdotal and small study size benefit for um, borderline self-injury, um, some of the, the rigid looping thought, um, and some of their, their behaviors. Um, psychotherapy still, I'm sorry guys, y'all have to fix them. I, I can't do it with a pill. Uh, I, can, I can keep them out of trouble maybe and treat what's co-occurring, but it's still therapy. Substance use disorder, you hear a lot about periprazine and it's D3 blockade, but I would caution you about that. Um, when people take Braylon for bipolar or schizophrenia or whatever, and they use substances, if you do not give them something else to cope with, to do, all of a sudden they can't get high. All of a sudden what they have to cope with doesn't work. So a lot of the times I can't keep them on the Braylon. They won't take it um, because they have no way to cope. They don't have, you know, something else to, to deal with things as they use their substances and stuff medicated. So it's, it's not a clear-cut easy thing. Um, it does have those benefits, but I think um, I, I still struggle getting people to be adherent to it. Always with, with co-occurring bipolar and substance use, you want to avoid uh, benzodiazepines, and we're very, very careful with quetiapine and gabapentin in uh, jail situations and residential because they will um, take mega doses, and it's just these are like the pathway to make them sleepier or, or make them a little high because they've worn out all the pathways with the drug of choice. Next, please. Okay, so very, very quickly, main thing with cognitive impairment is that you want to treat till they're fully remitted. You want to prevent episode recurrence. You want to not give them medicines that can impair cognitive functioning and executive functioning. You want to target psychiatric comorbidity, uh, mainly with substance and attention deficit. Um, target medical comorbidities and treat those. And normalize sleep patterns and chronobiology. In other words, you know, light and dark and doing the different things that we need to do. Aerobic exercise and <coughs> exercise. There are some investigative treatments that are they're looking at for cognition. Um, neural stimulation they're also looking at, and they're also looking at cognitive remediation, sort of similar to what they did strokes and different things. Next, please. I don't have to teach all this, y'all already know it. Um, the only ones I would add in, psychoeducation is a understanding their disorder and 
the expected course of, of their disorder, the expected um, response to medication, just the information so they know what to do. They looked at motivational interviewing as just an intervention that we can do in primary care and different things to improve adherence uh, to um, medication and treatment goals, but also in, in just getting to negotiate goals uh, of treatment. Y'all know about cognitive behavioral therapy, family-focused therapy, and then the interpersonal and social reference therapy. Next, please. Treatment goals, just understanding. When I look at treatment, I look at partial response. There's only, uh, they only get about 25% improvement uh, in whatever I'm rating them on from where they started. 50% I consider a good improvement uh, and continue on the course that I'm on. Remission is when they have an absence or mental symptoms of both mania and depression for at least one week. Sustained requires up to eight weeks is what they start looking at. And this was back in 2007. I couldn't find anything more recent. We look at areas of stress and implement management of strategies for that, monitoring support medication adherence and routine screening for adverse symptoms, and we develop and maintain a therapeutic alliance and then education on disease <coughs> and building um, a relapse prevention plan. That's the last one, I think. Next please. Yay! You guys are speakers. Sorry we got started late. And um, question wise, I don't mind staying and answering some questions. I know y'all probably have things to do. Um, I will, uh, in the message part, I will put in my email if y'all want to email me. What I'll do is um, I have the slides, and I don't mind if. Um, Glenn shares those with you, and I also have the reference list if you want me to send that along to you. Yeah, that's, that's helpful, too. Uh, I want the, the slides. And I think okay. I covered most of what yeah, everybody sort of asked about. Um, so thank y'all for having me um, and uh, putting up with me in my sleep for myself. So. Hey, Laura, how you doing? I'm so lovely. I can't stand myself. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really enjoyed you today. The staff is here. We're all listening to you. I think we got some other people that called in. We just appreciate. Let me try to get in focus here. We appreciate you doing it. You did a great job. Uh, and uh, we're just going to see if anybody has any questions for you. Anything else you want to tell us? Uh, we, we got your information out there. I know you're not on social media probably, nope. but we got you posted all over social media. That's so what Damon said, but he made fun of my picture and told me I had to get another face shot or whatever it's called. He said, we can't do that. You're trying too hard. That's awful. I said, okay. No, I mean, amazing. You should see some of the comments you got this morning when I posted you on my page, just telling everybody to give you a round of applause just for excellence and everything and the great job that you that you do and how much you've uh, just helped in this area and in this field of mental health we just want to say we appreciate you so much just being a top provider uh providing that excellent care i know i can trust any client that i send to you but you know i will send my own family members to you as well so we just want to tell you how much we do appreciate you going above and beyond you do an excellent job and your picture looks great well, there. I'll tell Damon. He's tell Damon he is so wrong. Yes, and we're gonna we're sending you a gift.
and everything. And of course, you know, we're going to want you to come back. I mean, because I think this is just very trying. And for those that are out there, if you're taking the LMSW test, you're taking your LPC or the LCSW, I mean, bipolar's on there. You need to let, I mean, today was some really good information to help you, uh, you know, as we're testing and things like that. Say one, one question I have for you was that which which test, which assessment, because you know I'm an assessment queen as well, which assessment do you recommend for bipolar disorder? Because I want us to start using that as a standard of practice here as well. I really do the same thing with all my new patients. I will do, uh, for adults, I'll do a PHQ-9. Okay. A disorder questionnaire, um, a LEC uh, and PCO-5. LEC-5 and PCO-5, just because I'm not smart enough to know another one, they have that. Okay. So I'll do those just to screen and differentiate. Um, I will use the adult ADHD screener if I have any question or they bring it up. Um, and that's just a starting place for me to sort of have the main things that I would expect uh, to come out. Um, I'll add in Wabach, I'll add in different things that I'll do. With the kids, I'm a little bit different because there is that cutoff, you know, at 12 and up and, and, and under. So the, the 12 and older, I do the same thing, except I do a trauma checklist and a CPSS on them for trauma. Uh, and I'll do a Vanderbilt on them sometimes. I know 13 and over is not the greatest, but it gives me something they can self-rate. The younger kids, I'll do a Vanderbilt assessment, uh, and it'll screen for a lot of different things. I'll use the scare for anxiety because it differentiates out for me a good bit, and I'll use the um, mood feelings questionnaire, um, okay. which is, is better for them. Um, so, you know, those are sort of my go-to ones that I'll use. Okay. I'll also use the modified, modified overt aggression scale. Uh, just to keep up with my oppositional kids as well. But I, I'm usually only going to pull those out if they score positive on that Vanderbilt assessment. Okay, so you start with your Vanderbilt assessment? Yes, yeah. Okay. And then I, I go from there. Now I'm going to do a um, trauma assessment on everybody. Yes. And what we're doing in primary care, that rapid screener is more for primary care. Those okay. people are not differentiating. So we're going to start using that when you're diagnosing depression. We're also doing the pearls and looking at adverse childhood experiences and yes. scores. And what we're doing in the primary care setting. What did you say for adverse pearls? Yeah, it's called pearls. It, okay. It's basically the questionnaire, but it's a little easier to score. Okay. Um, and it sort of goes along with the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics algorithm for adverse childhood experience. And what we're doing is when we're identifying anybody which ha with, that has, um, you know, uh, a, an ACE score that's higher, or I have kids that come in and they'll mark no on all the traumas, especially my kids in foster care. They'll mark no on all of them, but when I give them a, a, a pearls and I look for adverse childhood experiences, they're out the roof. I mean, you know you look at them and they, they present trauma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's very good. Okay. Very good. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Well, we just want to stay on current with best practice. Uh, any other questions from anybody else? Yeah, I have a question. Okay, wait a minute. Kip has a question. You have to come over, Kip. Uh, uh, no. Can you hear me? No. I can't. You can't. Okay. Uh, I, my, my question is that for children, dealing with grief and depression. What would, what would be the best uh, assessment for them? Um, I, I think you want to look at um, 
the pearls on them to see okay. what other things they're going through. Sadly, it's not just been losing family members and mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And the sad thing is multiple family members. And then the soliloquy that comes after, there's financial issues, there's all those kind of things. So I do a pearl. Um, I also do uh, some of the res resiliency questionnaires, just to sort of see what they have and where you could go with that. Uh, and then I just, I'll do those screenings with the Vanderbilt just to know, do I need to look at depression? Do I need to look at something more? But that's that's mainly what, what I would do. Um, and mine is just, people just don't take a really good history and sometimes they won't volunteer it. And they're like, they got depression, they got this going on, they're acting up in school. And when you start taking that history, well, they're just now 12, 13, and grandmama raised them, and they did great, and all of a sudden grandmama's in the nursing home or die. Or, you know, they've lost the main stability that they've had in their life. It wasn't just losing someone they love, but a lot of times kids end up foster care, and you'll ask them, who, who cares if you come home? Who cares if you eat? And they don't have an answer for you anymore. Wow. Wow. Okay. Did that answer it, Kip? Yes, you did. You answered it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Cool. yeah. All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much again. Uh, just a big round of applause. Yes, so, we're so appreciative, okay? Thanks. Right. Now, uh, I'll be sending you a gift, but just remember, this is just one of many trainings I'll be asking you to do. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to sleep before the next one. I had a presentation yesterday, and I've been thinking on this one. And as usual, I have all these thoughts up here and having to bring them down and make them uh, concise. So, but if y'all want the reference list, um, we want the reference list for sure. I'll just send yes, it to you send us the PowerPoint and the reference. And you know, like I said, I think this was just a good start today. Anybody listening will provide a certificate of completion for today's training, uh, contact our office. But uh, one of the things I would say is that we need a bigger training on it. I mean, people, we need to understand diagnosing bipolar disorder and we don't want to over-diagnose it, but we want to be able to have clinicians to uh, have a really good understanding in diagnosis. And we want the public to understand that it is treatable, you know. It is extremely treatable and that people can live successfully and be happy even if they've got bipolar disorder. You know, they can live and function uh, a normal life. So we want to remove that stigma. Uh, I sent you some stuff just on going green. Did you get it? And we, oh, we haven't sent it to you yet. Okay, so you'll get some of your stuff on going green, mental health. We'll send it to you so the next time you can just flash that, okay? Hey, let me know when y'all send it, because y'all know Damon steals my stuff and hides it from me if he likes it really well. <laughs> All right, we're, we're going to send him something as well. I'm so just he will, telling you. So he will it, give it to it you. Work. Okay. Have a good one, okay? Thank I you. Bye-bye. Y'all have a good holiday. Bye. Oh, yeah. Happy holiday. All right. Bye. Bye.